Welcome to the Flying Less podcast, a podcast created for the School of Geography and the Environment at the University of Oxford in collaboration with the University of Oxford's Environmental Sustainability Team, funded by the Green Travel Fund. The Flying Less podcast, the podcast which asks what you and your university stand to gain by flying less. You know, I don't say that I will never fly again. I haven't flown since 2007. You know, there might be an occasion, but there has to be a really, really high bar. If the aviation industry wants to be neutral, one way is to reduce the flight annually by two and a half percent. We're all happy to point out the problem that actually finding the solution is far more difficult. A one-size-fits-all solution, even at an institutional level, isn't going to work. For me, definitely, I would say that by not flying, I really opened space for creativity, for new ideas, uh, I think very relevant ideas. and for new ways of doing research. I'm your host and humanities turned social science researcher, Dr. Noah Bergstedt-Breen. Welcome back to the Flying Less podcast. In episode one, we learned that to avoid a further contribution to global warming, there needs to be a global reduction in aviation by at least 2.5% year on year compared with pre-pandemic levels. With the global pandemic in 2020, conferences and events in the higher education sector went fully online for a period of time. This episode is a chance to reflect on what we've learned so far as a sector and to consider why not just go back to fully in-person conferences. Part one, decarbonizing conferences. I start by asking how significant are the aviation emissions from flying to conferences? Back to a scholar we met in episode one, Dr. Matt Watson, transport scholar at the University of Sheffield. First, we need to know why people are traveling and largely we don't. The research that's been done indicates that across disciplines, it's mostly for conferences. And we know that some colleagues go to conferences an awful lot more than others do, and perhaps they go to fewer. And, and get, so far as there's been research on how far there's a correlation between lots of international travel and career progress, it hasn't found a strong correlation. Okay, so there may not be enough data to know precisely how much academic flying is for international conferences. Also, it may be a subjective question of value. To shed further light on this issue, I speak to another transport scholar, Associate Professor Debbie Hopkins, to ask whether she can produce a concrete figure on quantities of flying relating to conferencing based on the scholarly literature. In the transport scholarship, do we have a, a fairly good sense of across the board these figures or, or not really you're shaking no, your head <laughs> i think that that's part of the problem and actually many of the assessments i i question because it's hard to know what the primary motivation is and in many ways and i guess this is a, a, a somewhat academic question is whether we're able to ever really know that so um many people that you speak to in interview will admit that sometimes they go to a conference because they have family that live nearby and actually, their primary purpose for doing that trip was to see their family, but they could get funded to see their family if they went to the conference. And if you put that in a certain way in a survey, you can end up very easily by finding that the, the conference was the primary motivation, right? Because they might not actually want or be able through the way the questions worded to share that actually they weren't, that that wasn't maybe the primary motivation. And, and I think it's also very hard for people to disentangle the motivations. I'm not sure it's always very easy to put hard and fast numbers on how much travel is happening. I'm sure academic institutions would have numbers to a certain degree, but obviously you, you and I and many people know that it's very difficult to get those numbers. Okay, so it's really hard to know. Why then so much focus on conferences? Well, firstly, 
It's likely that a very significant percentage of academic flying is related to international conferences. And secondly, there are potential alternatives to flying when it comes to international meetings compared to, say, anthropological fieldwork, which may be harder to replicate. Of course, the alternatives are not perfect solutions, but at least some alternatives do exist. In episode one, we met Milan Clover at Oxford, who works on climate computing. This time, I asked him about his research on decarbonizing conferences. So you've co-authored another article, an analysis of ways to decarbonize conferences uh, in nature 2020. Could you tell us what are the big opportunities to decarbonize conferences? Yeah, conferences are interesting, right? Because um, conferences serve a lot of different purposes. You may come from the global south and have never been to a conference. And uh, then like in one year, you have the opportunity to go to one. And if you actually go, you end up, for example, making a lot of great uh, contacts with people, something that's more as easy um, to, to, to achieve if you do it virtually. On the other hand, you may have some, uh, yeah, I mean, the classic cliche uh, professor who literally there's a five-day conference and they give a talk and they literally like arrive on the morning of one, give a talk, uh, say hello to a couple of people, shake a couple of hands, and then they leave again in the evening. And so in this article, what we try to point out is that the carbon emissions of these conferences are actually enormous because there's so many people coming together, often for a week, sometimes even less than a week, from all over the world. Um, you have most of these people arriving from the global north, meaning that really the, the major emissions are intercontinental flights between North America, Europe, and East Asia. So if you were to somehow eliminate these flights uh, and not basically manage to organize a conference in a way that you people only fly regionally and do not fly from one continent to the other, you suddenly can save a lot of emissions. We basically also put this article out because... Um, we wrote and submitted before the pandemic, and then it was basically published within the pandemic. So we kind of had to rewrite it uh, because suddenly things, everything changed. And before the pandemic, we were in the situation where most conferences did not allow for any virtual participation, meaning that you basically you either have to be there in person or you're not around. With this article, we say like um, conferences, whatever they consider the format to be in the future, they should always try to include virtual participation. There's no reason why a scientist, let's say from Australia or New Zealand, can't give a talk in the States or in Europe um, if they prefer to be at home. And there's many, many good reasons for why people actually do not want to travel, right? There's family, there's money, there's time reasons, and so on. The next a uh, big result that we had in this in this study is that what actually would happen if we eliminated the intercontinental flights and basically have like a hub system. So what happens if a conference that is internationally attended decides to have one conference venue in North America, one in, let's say, Europe, and one in East Asia, and they're all interlinked. And what you then do as a researcher is that you fly to the one that's closest to you so that you avoid all these additional air miles by flying halfway around the world. So you basically have, let's say, sessions that run either like in parallel across different hubs, and you either have then the speaker in person in front of you, or the speaker is at another hub and is then zoomed in, and the questions are basically propagated back and forth. Yes, but the technology is there, 
and the technology allows us actually to do that. Um, I haven't seen so far a big conference, so like really where the hubs are spread around the globe, that has completely implemented this idea. But what we showed in this article is that if you do that, you immediately, because you avoid the intercontinental flights, you immediately reduce the um, the, the carbon emissions, the carbon footprint of such a conference by 80% or so. Okay, so a huge reduction in carbon footprints. And in the article, Milan Clover and the other co-authors point out that a fully virtual conference is a 99% reduction in carbon footprints. Often I find that people, when they talk about virtual or hybrid conferences, they sort of take conventional in-person conferences as the norm. And then if there's anything going wrong with a virtual or the hybrid one, they sort of go, ah, you see, you see there's a problem with these to this type of conference. Are we making a mistake if we somehow hold hybrid and virtual conferences to a higher standard? At the beginning of the pandemic, if anyone would have said like, yeah, we just have a whole conference with like 20,000 people virtually, everyone would have said like, what? How do you want to do that? And with the time frame over here, it's absolutely normal. And people have come up with the technology to do that. Um, now we know that virtual conferences can be super smooth because there's like um, people working on the technology in the background. And if, you, if you're presenting, you, for example, you also send them your slides in advance. Um, or they have like different channels popping up and your sound goes through one, the video goes through the other. Sometimes I don't even realize exactly what's happening, but they say like, yeah, you're all good, good to go. And you just talk and you're like, okay, cool. This somehow just works. Once we go to hybrid, in the beginning, yes, it will be awkward, right? So I don't know, the sound will be cut off. It will be difficult to like hear a question. We just, we basically started at that, um, at our department where we have a hybrid seminars now. Um, and so it's a question for whoever chairs these sessions, how do you set this up? Like, how do you make sure that whenever there's a question asked, the virtual speaker can hear it? If there's some, someone virtually attending, how can they ask a question that everyone in the room hears it as well as the presenter? It's all these little technical questions. So virtual and hybrid conferences developed and deployed correctly have the potential to hugely lower carbon emissions while still connecting researchers globally. Again, we must never forget that every new solution requires interrogation. Is this all a bit too good to be true? Time to speak again to Associate Professor Debbie Hopkins at Oxford. Once we're starting to talk about moving between Europe and North America, North America and Africa, wherever else we're talking about, and we really do need to be paying attention to those, those flights and how we don't create a system that means that if you're based in Aotearoa, New Zealand, if you're based in Pacific, in, in uh, Latin America, you're not just suddenly excluded from academic attendance and you're relegated to online. Um, and, and you know, the, the model that they talk about is, is very important, but I'm still very nervous about the idea that you get these kind of smaller hubs that are considered to be less important. You know, all the prestigious people are at the European hub. So actually, you still want to be at the European hub, right? Because the people you're going to bump into there are the people who are the PIs that bring in the big grants that might employ you in the future. Why would you choose to go to your local hub? You know, and, and I worry about how we actually work this through in such a way that means that we don't end up further perpetuating these inequalities. There are benefits that come from lower cost of attendance and so on. 
and there are limits to it. And when we are making these decisions in Europe, in North America, particularly if we're scholars who haven't lived in places that that are outside of Europe, North America, and I do worry about what that means, you know, that we end up just centering ourselves once again at the middle, (laughs) at the heart of academia, and saying, oh, oh, poor them, they're not centered here, they can't come here, but we'll create a hub for them. And, uh, you know, I, I don't mean to be dismissive of it because I'm an author on that paper as well. But what I'm saying is it, it, it's maybe not as easy as that to play it out. I, I sometimes fear that the the simplest solution will be the one that will be will be um, used and actually the simplest solution will exacerbate all sorts of inequalities. And that really worries me that we end up with a situation where academia becomes the worst model of itself and we end up with just a small minority of people being able to travel and do these things and um, i don't hybrid models just don't seem to work and i've seen things on twitter where people have spoken about booking hotels to like go and sit in a hotel to do the conference they are away from whatever caring responsibility they might have but also they get a bit of a sensation of being away um, which I think is quite interesting. And then that comes down to how universities fund that. Like, will they give time off for attending a virtual conference? Will they fund a hotel? Do they think that that's important enough? Or do they think that's you know a luxury? Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see. I think this next year, we'll learn a lot about what's possible and, and what continues and what doesn't. Right. So learning how to use hybrid properly to ensure a fully engaged role for virtual participants is a key challenge for the university sector in the coming year both in terms of the event itself, but also in finding the appropriate institutional support for organizers and participants. To tell us more about current best practice and all the things that can go wrong, let's embark on part two, a guide for conference organizers. In this second part of the episode, I speak to three seasoned organizers of virtual and hybrid conferencing. Part two is designed for anyone who is considering organizing a virtual or hybrid event to answer questions like virtual or hybrid, which platforms are suited to your event, what makes a good virtual and hybrid event, and yes, what makes a bad one. Hi everybody, it's a pleasure to be here. My name is Patrizia Ferrari, I'm the owner and lead planner of Guy Events. I am based in um, London and Italy and I organize events worldwide. Uh, my name's Alex Fornito. I'm a professor at the Turner Institute for Brain and Mental Health at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. And uh, I uh, do work in, in human brain imaging, trying to understand how the brain relates to uh, behavior and disease. So I'm going to focus on these two events that you've organized as sort of case study events. Maybe, Patricia, if I can ask you to go first and talk about the Climate Neutrality Forum. Yeah, sure. So for the Climate Neutrality Forum, we used Hopin, so a platform called Hopin, uh, which is very easy to use. Nothing extra about it. It's just a very straightforward um, platform that works really well for um, our needs. The idea was that we had, so we had three hubs um, in three different parts of Europe, so Oxford, Berlin, and Milan, and the three hubs would then connect it virtually, um, so everyone in each one of these hubs could hear and see everyone, and that we also created a, a space online for a much wider uh, audience to participate and watch the live streams, send in questions and network with each other since they weren't able to come to the physical locations. We didn't want to do this on Zoom because Zoom has certain limitations. As we said, we wanted to have a more robust space 
where people could network with each other. You know, we offer one-to-one networking opportunities. Um, They could go back anytime they wanted to watch the the sessions that had already taken place early in the day. So we did um, a bit of research to find what was the best. Alex, it'd be great to ask you about the Organization for Human Brain Mapping annual conference. The organization is a professional society of scientists working in the field of human brain imaging and each year we have an annual conference where we come together, we share our findings, network and so on. In 20... What year are we now? 2021. So in uh, 2020, uh, COVID hit and the society had to scramble because a lot of places were in lockdown and travel had stopped. So I had to scramble to organize a virtual conference. The decision was made to keep going with the conference, but to hold it virtually. This year, uh, I was tapped on the shoulder to head up a technology task force that uh, would be charged with trying to develop a a platform that would better cater to our needs this year. Um, So we went through a bit of a process. We, uh, you know, debriefed what we thought didn't work and worked from last year's meeting. We came up with a list of priorities and features that we wanted to see in a platform. But one that really caught our eye that was um, you know, perhaps a little bit risky was, was a, a software company that uh, had experience doing online events, but more at the level of social engagements and concerts. Are you happy to sort of name, name the platform? Not that I'm wanting to sort of directly advertise anyone, but I think it's useful for people to know. Sure, yes. Yeah. So, 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 so the platform is called Sparkle. Uh, and, you know, it was, it, was, it was quite a fair amount of work to, to get it all going. Um, and, you know, we had some hiccups along the way. But in the end, I think it, we did end up developing quite a unique space. So it had, a, it had, a, it had a, literally a space theme uh, with a sort of planet brain that was the landing page and people could um, go into different spaces and... Uh, you know, we had social areas, we had social activities where there was uh, entertainment, things like cocktail making activities, um, uh, comedians and so on. So, um, you know, these little things helped to try to bring the community together because I I think this is the thing that we've found is is really the biggest challenge with virtual meetings, um, trying to... Uh, keep that social interaction uh, and capacity for network going. Um, yeah, so I think we've got it up there, well, at least until the end of next year. Um, now, the other nice thing is that the code is open source. So if you have um, some tech-savvy people in your organization, they can continue to develop it themselves, um, which is, is a really nice feature. We are not we are still in the process of deciding what will happen next year because the plan is to uh, have some kind of hybrid format and we're still trying to work through exactly what that's going to look like. One thing I'm just wanting to bring out is, I guess, I think there's sometimes a misperception around events being more or less the same however we do them in a way, whereas I feel like, to exaggerate slightly, there's a, a platform for every event Perhaps, of course, it's not quite like that, and we can reuse different platforms, different events. But um, just that no one should necessarily think you just pick it off the shelf and it's and it's right for you. That actually there are lots of different ways of doing it. How do you make the big decision between virtual and hybrid? 
uh, and and these particular platforms and if there are any other you would recommend as well so i think you know when deciding and choosing uh your your platform or you know what decision uh, the decision to make either hybrid or virtual events i think um it all depends on your aims it depends on your objectives it depends on your audience so it's it's not a a, a one size uh, fits all approach uh, when it comes to virtual and hybrid events um, you know the something that can that would work for uh, Oxford academics they're not necessarily going to work for a group of teenagers which might be your target audience I feel now that there's uh, more and more a shift towards platforms that are more sort of um, community focused, that is you create your network and you host your events always using the same environment. So you can build on your network. So if the first event you gather 100 people, the second another 150, so now you have 250 people to target for uh, a, your series of events. And this works really well if you, for instance, have uh, you know that you're going to be organizing about 10 events in the series and you need a platform where people are, you know, can get familiar each time they, they log in and they can see always the same faces, always the same people. I just want to ask again on, on a similar subject. I can have, have stars by asking Alex, but, but for you both. I guess I've almost come up with these short hands for myself and I don't know if this is oversimplifying. With virtual or hybrid, I tend to think virtual is just so much more straightforward and low budget that for someone who just really wants to connect people in a straightforward way, go for virtual. If you do have a bit more capacity, go for hybrid because you can get people into rooms. You can connect those rooms across um, continents if you want to. Um, and that's going to be a fantastic event, but, but you have to be aware that there's going to be, it's going to cost more and it's going to be technically more complex. My opinion in regards to hybrid and virtual, as you were saying, cost-effective virtual events, everyone is very familiar with it now. It's safe to say that you're probably attending a virtual meeting or an event once a day, once a week. Um, so people are, are familiar um, with, with that. And then now the, um, the opinion is shifting. You know, people are just saying, why would I travel? Uh, if I can just sit in the comfort of my living room with my cup of tea and then still absorb all the information. Hybrid events, uh, they do have an association associated uh, sort of it's a higher cost to organize hybrid events just simply because of the technical infrastructure that's uh, involved. But at the same time, it's, it, it's really interesting what you can do uh, with hybrid formats and how many, you know, for, for us with the climate neutrality form, there was a joke at the end of it. It's like, okay, next year, let's try to see how many hubs we can actually con connect and, you know, how complex this is going to get, but how interesting it is going to be. I think, you know, both have got advantages and disadvantages, like anything. Um, I think, you know, on the one hand, as, as Patricia said, a, a real advantage is the increased accessibility. So there's labs around the world working in this field and they vary in their means, the amount of resources and funding they have to be able to send their researchers, their students and so on. And so allowing uh, people, particularly students who maybe don't have the same level of funding as more senior researchers to participate uh, in the conference in some way is great. 
the flip side is that um, you know a lot of people report that uh, it can be harder being at a virtual conference because if they go away somewhere, then they've farmed off that time. They've you know put aside a week. They're away from the family. They can concentrate on their work. Whereas if they're doing it from home, they've got the kids running around. They're trying to you know do two hours conference, go feed the kids, come back, and so you know I think wherever conference organisers can help people at least develop strategies uh, about how to deal with competing um, responsibilities when participating in virtual conferences. I think that will help the the rollout and the pr proliferation of um, more online meetings. Um, I, I personally feel like the the online format has a lot of potential, but the, the two biggest challenges are sort of preventing screen burnout you know, just from sitting and looking at presentations for hours on end. And part of that is, I guess, using some innovation in the programming and scheduling of the conference and also uh, maintaining that social element. Now I turn to a person who co-organized a virtual event on Discord, Joel Foramiti at the Institute for Environmental Science and Technology at the Autonomous University of Barcelona. I'm Joel. I'm a PhD student at ICTA UEB. I work here on topics like agent-based modeling, climate policy, and human needs. And so you're in, you're coming to coming to me here. We're talking. You're in Barcelona. Is that right? Yes, I'm based in Barcelona, close to Barcelona. Actually, I'm, I'm living in the forest outside. I thought I saw some amazing-looking yeah. green out there. <laughs> and if you could maybe just say in a in a sort of in a nutshell, what, what was this um, Low Carbon Lifestyles conference? Kind of what, what was the gist of the actual conference and how did you go about organizing it? So the idea of the conference, I think, is in the title. We were very interested to um, look at the cultural side of the, the climate crisis. But we also wanted to really connect it to the systemic perspective. So we wouldn't, didn't want to have a conference about how everyone individually should behave differently, but about how lifestyle changes happen collectively in society. And originally we planned to do an actual conference. So we were, we were just trying to do what was normal and, and do a physical conference here in Barcelona. And we had many ideas on, on how to make the conference itself a good case of um, lifestyle changes, of sustainable behavior, we had a whole um, scheme planned that people who would not fly to get here um, would pay half or even less oh, of the entry wow. ticket to, to subsidize um, train tickets um, in a way. And then the, then the pandemic hit and we became increasingly aware that we have to cancel the conference. But then since there was a lot of energy in the team and people still wanted to do it because we had put so much work into the process until now, we, we sent out a survey to all the participants if, if they would like a, a virtual format. And people were very excited about it. Now, in retrospect, it's not because virtual formats are very exciting, but in that moment of history, um, I mean, it was February, um, right when the, when the pandemic began to start in Europe. It was a very exciting idea to everyone was stuck at home to, to organize a virtual conference. So we went ahead and we, we changed the whole format. And I, I think it, it, it was a great success. Again, in the context of the time, I think now people are a bit more bored 
by the idea or saturated. But at this beginning of um, the pandemic, it, it was a, a great way to connect with people. Um, there was a lot of joy and I hope it was also academically very interesting. How long did you have to suddenly to, to, to pull out the virtual conference? Not long. Huh? We, I think we had two months um, from that wow. decision to the actual conference. Okay. And um, th this was your first ever virtual conference as an organizer, is that right? Yes. <laughs> okay. And I think um, for the whole team, that was the case. Yeah, I imagine. Um, and how many, just to set the parameters, kind of how many people were, were in your organizing team? What level of technical expertise did you have? What kind of budgets were you working with? We were around um, 15 people in the team, 15 to 20. Um, but there was like a core team of three PhD students um, that kind of had the idea and, and did, the, um, did the main organization in the beginning. And in terms of budget, we, we, we had budget for a physical conference, right? And in the end, all we had to pay was some, yeah, some, some hosting space. Uh, so we, we didn't even use a small share of, of, of the budget the university could have given us to, to organize this conference. So, I'm, so we're sort of about to get to the point where we start talking about Discord, because I think I'm yeah. right in saying it as well, yeah. Um, so just to check in though, on terms of levels of technical expertise, um, were you all kind of generalists or do you have sort of coding experience or kind of where, where are you at with, with that when, at that point? I mean, we, we all work with software in our research as well. So we, we all had, um, some technical background. Um, there's also a, a technical department at our institute where we got some very good support when we had questions. But in general, we, we had no expertise for this, this particular task. And so we, we pretty much went with very ad hoc um, tools that we found online that, that just seemed to do the job. And, and as you said, this, this led us to, to Discord, which is not meant for academic conferences, but it was just the, the best tool around um, that we could find that that gave us a feeling it would be stable, it would work well. And it's really made for, um, for social reasons. Um, so we really had a feeling that it would be nice to give the conference a more social flair to just use a tool that works well. It's because as you said, it's not an obvious decision at all. When I've looked it up on YouTube, it seems that a lot of gamers use it, which perhaps is encouraging in a way, because it means it must be very, you know, if a lot of teenagers are kind of into it, it's something goes right about it. I mean, it's similar to how most messaging apps um, work these days. So what you have is different channels um, for different topics. In our case, it was the different um, topics and lectures of the conference. And each channel, um, you can just join and, and write and have a conversation. And in addition to this, um, you can directly write private messages to everyone in on this server, um, on this event. Um, and you can also start a private group discussion um, with two or three people. In addition to that, you can talk also um, with voice and video. But we didn't use that so much. I think for us, the main feature that made it very nice was this fact that there were channels for different topics. 
where people found themselves with common interests um, in the conference and, and actually had quite a lot of, of discussions. No? Um, and what was really nice about it is that after you have a, a talk on, on Zoom or on, on a webinar platform, we just recorded the video, we put it in the channel, we recorded the chat of that webinar, put it in the channel, and then people could keep discussing. Like if someone was really excited about a topic, they didn't have to go to the next lecture. It just stayed in that channel for the rest of the conference. Yeah, so you could get in touch with that person if you felt you, you wanted to. I mean, for, if there's anyone who has had an experience of Zoom, where you have the little Zoom chat, it's like that, but 10 times better. Because actually, not only do you have that single bit of chat, but you also have different channels where you can easily find the theme that's in, of interest to you. And amazingly, it is free, isn't it? It's not open source, but it is actually free. Is that right? Exactly. It's a, it's a kind of model where you can pay to get kind of better features. So in our case, we did pay to have um, a faster server or more, um, more capacity on, on the server, but it is generally free. Is it fair to say that in terms of community building, it's particularly well suited for that in terms of what we talked about, that you can carry on the conversations. It's free. So if, if people do want to keep communicating and, and discussing things, they can do that for any amount of time. Exactly. That's a, a big positive um, aspect of it that everyone can access it. Um, it's very easy to get into communication. What people told us what was nice, it was easy for younger researchers to directly get into a conversation with the seniors. Well, at a real conference, there's often a bit of a status barrier to, to do that. So it was very easy to just write up to the speaker of any talk and ask some additional questions. Uh, what is more difficult is the informal space, right? Um, so... It's more difficult to kind of like randomly make friends by during the lunch break, um, during the evening. And, and this, this remains a, a big challenge because it, it is just less intuitive online. And it worked well in our conference because people were very excited and put a lot of energy into it. But if you participate in a low energy way, then you, I mean, you, it's, it needs just like 10 times the energy. To, to have like some good informal spaces running than it would by just people hanging out in real life. Brilliant. Well, let me ask you about your co-authored article, The, the Virtues of Virtual Conferences, um, which is really useful because obviously not only did you organize it, but you also then with, with colleagues critically reflected on it. Let me just dive straight into what I found to be um, the most surprising thing, because often when people talk about virtual conferences, um, you know, the, what they're talking about is decarbonization, is the, you know, it's the carbon footprint, which is obviously fantastic to sort of to lower that or to, you know, so, so dramatically. But one thing really struck me is you were writing about um, that from your respondents, you said that they rated the quality of academic discussions as comparable to regular physical conferences, while 60% saw an advantage in terms of possibilities to exchange feedback. Um, and I think a lot of people might be surprised that actually, you know, there are advantages in terms of academic quality. Um, there may be difficulties and potential pitfalls, but there, there are potentially huge advantages as well. Yes, I think it, it surprised us too. And I think the main idea for the article was that 
we thought like, oh, there is more to um, virtual conferences than just the environmental dimension. And we did this feedback survey um, that was turned out really positive on, on, on these things. So we thought it would be worth, worth sharing. And the point you mentioned regarding the, the quality of academic discussions, I think there were a few reasons um, for why this was a good experience at, at this conference, at least. Um, but what helped a lot, um, in my perspective, was the possibility to pre-record the talks. And, and these pre-recorded talks were all very high quality. Some even did some editing in the talks to, 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 to show something. So I, I really like this idea that, that people could record their talk in advance. And then they also had much more energy to respond to questions. So often all the, all the co-authors were, or some co-authors were also in the chat and, and people that there was just a much more space to, to ask and answer questions. Because even if there was no time in the Q and A where you picked like five to maximum 10 questions, right? Everyone who had a question eventually got it answered later in the forum or by the co-authors in the chat. In a physical talk, like the talk happens and three people um, get chosen for a question. And then there will be more discussion with, with the author um, informally, but there's always this divide between that, that person's main research group or the, the senior academics and, and the other participants. And I felt like that the forum broke down this barrier a bit. Um, and it's... That's why for me personally, I would have put in the survey that I did have a very positive experience in terms of academic discussions. Before we end this episode, I just want to give the final word to Dr. Michelle Veldsman, the experimental psychology researcher who is one of the members of the technological task force mentioned by Professor Alex Fornito a few moments ago. When you're a young family and you're, you're paying all these nursery fees and all of these other things, you really don't need to be putting out all this money to go to a conference. I brought her to everything. I just took her to everything. Yeah, I put she I put her in a sling, um, and she slept in the sling for most of it. Um, she there's like there's videos of me actually, you know, giving talks and doing interviews and stuff with this baby in there. Uh, thankfully, she just slept a lot whilst in the sling. Um, but yeah, it was really difficult. We're trying to recreate these in-person conferences. I think we sometimes think about it through rose-tinted glasses. Like a lot of the time, a big problem in our field is this: um, is the poster sessions that people say they get the most interaction and engagement with. Well, the last poster session I went to, it was in Rome. It was so hot and there was no space. So I didn't engage with anyone, literally no one, <laughs> because... I was like in this little corner. I was so, so hot and there were so many people around. The noise was so much. I mean, I didn't, there was no meaningful exchange there. So um, I really think we need to be realistic about those exchanges. I know for some people and a lot of the time for really extroverted people, you know, they feel like that this can't, this can't be recreated online. But actually for a lot of introverted people, it, this is a better way I can just I can just write my question there and I don't have to worry about standing in front of a mic and you know saying my question and I don't and you know one of the benefits is you don't have to listen to those people saying um it's not really a question so much as a comment and then rattling on for like 40 minutes and talking about their own work so <laughs> they'd have to type all that into a comment box 
and then everyone would downvote it. So I do think we can get better. I, I, I do think there are ways to um, to get more uh, engagement, you know, that scientific or, or academic engagement. That's it for this episode. We've heard many compelling reasons why conferences should always include a virtual component, not only to cut the carbon footprint by 80% or more, but also for reasons of accessibility. And we saw how conferencing can continue in new formats suited to all event types, sizes and budgets, from fully virtual, free and flexible online platforms like Discord to extremely sophisticated platforms like Sparkle, straightforward, satisfying experiences on a hop-in, C-Vent, Zoom webinar and others, or even hybrid events across multiple hubs to combine the best of in-person conferencing with virtual participation across continents. As technology develops in leaps and bounds, it will be important to keep interrogating the carbon footprint of the technology, which is generally only about 1% of a fully in-person conference at present, but might rise with the increase in augmented reality and other innovations such as hologrammatic technologies, not to mention the power relations embedded within these technologies. But at this time, when the higher education sector and other sectors are at a crossroads, there is a huge opportunity to make several bold steps towards a more sustainable and fairer higher education sector by embracing and developing further the use of virtual and hybrid conferencing. Thank you to everyone who has taken time to contribute to this podcast, and thank you for listening. This episode was written and produced by myself, Dr. Noah Bergstedt-Breen, and edited by Ryan Beckerleg, a PhD student in the School of Physics and Astronomy at the University of Cardiff, and radio host extraordinaire of Cardiff's Student Radio. The artwork is by Arda Yushic. The podcast music was written and composed by Julian Bell. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please help us to spread the Flying Less message by sharing your favorite episodes on social media and by recommending it to colleagues and students. The Flying Less podcast, the podcast which asks what you and your university stand to gain by flying less.